to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. So after uh, much anticipation, uh, this is the day we actually are beginning our uh, long series on the book of, uh, through the book of Romans. Uh, if you know, uh, if you've been with us for a while and you know uh, the, the drill by now in terms of preaching through books of the Bible, and that is that we uh, don't just dive right into the preaching right away, that it always takes a little bit of uh, teaching uh, before I start preaching. And so we're going to do that again with the book of Romans. There's going to be two weeks, uh, two teaching messages, and so we're not going to really do any expository stuff through these verses yet. Uh, two weeks to kind of lay the foundation in terms of teaching to help orient ourselves to the book of Romans. And uh, after next Sunday, I will be on vacation. Ben is going to preach for us the Sunday after that. And then when I come back after, uh, after that, then I will begin uh, preaching improper through the book of Romans. So two introductory messages. We're going to read verses, uh, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Like I said, this is really just a starting point for some teaching on Romans today, so it's not an expository sermon on these verses this morning, but it's a good way uh, to get ourselves into the book of Romans. Just one uh, other word about the image that uh, Megan has chosen. Um, I really love the road. I thought it was there, but it's not. <laughs> This beautiful blank image, no, okay. If you saw the image before coming in, there's a, it's an image of a road, and I think it's a, a fantastic image for our study of Romans because uh, I, the way I read Romans, the way I see Romans is very much like a journey. Uh, so I think the road image is very fitting. Um, I had initially had a, the title, the road, Romans, the Road to Righteousness. I was struggling to find what is the overarching main theme, which we're going to talk about in the introductory message later on, so I won't say more about that. But I switched from the road to righteousness to the power of the gospel. And, uh, but... Th- it is, uh, it is the gospel road. It's uh, the road to righteousness, the road to glory, the road uh, to justification. It's the road to, that, that lays out the uh, salvation, redemption plan for Jews and Gentiles. All of this is part of the gospel. So I think the road is a very fitting image. And through our study of the book, I encourage you to keep that image in our mind as we journey together through this letter and through this book, uh, journey in the gospel to the glory of God. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's bow together as we ask for the Spirit's anointing this morning. Lord God, it is so good to gather in your house to worship. And Lord, it is so good to turn our attention to this beautiful letter, this beautiful book of the Bible. This is your word. And I pray, O oh Lord, that this Sunday and next Sunday as we lay a foundation Uh, through some teachings, some introductory matters. I pray, O Lord, that it would be fruitful and useful. Lord, that we might have a a strong foot to stand on in our understanding of and our appreciation of and our encounter with the living God through the book of Romans. So, Lord, do your work in us this morning. Give us understanding and uh, reveal yourself to us, Lord, even as we cover these introductory matters, I pray that it would be fruitful and useful for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. In the 4th century A.D., a distinguished philosopher came to be convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity. He was a brilliant man, but he was also a man who was deeply entrenched in sexual immorality. And his past life had a vice-like grip on him. He believed the truthfulness of the Christian faith, but it had not yet penetrated and transformed his heart, and he was living as a result under this cloud of deep gloom and guilt. And then one day, while he was in a garden in a, at a friend's estate in Italy, this philosopher heard a child singing. It was a song he had never heard before. It was a peculiar song, and this child just kept singing the same refrain over and over and over again. It was, uh, the, the refrain was, take and read, take and read, take and read. And this philosopher took this as a message from God. And so he went, and he found a Bible, and he took it, and he just flipped it open randomly to any place where the, where the pages would fall, and he read. And the words that he read after opening it randomly, were these from Romans 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And those words pierced this philosopher's heart. And by his reading of them through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was in that very moment converted. And he went on to become one of the greatest figures in the history of the church. By now, I suspect many of you know who this man was. Anybody know who, who I'm talking about here? It was exactly, it was the man we know today as St. Augustine. It was through Romans that the Holy Spirit captured his heart and converted him Augustine later described the event in his own words, saying this, Instantly, as that sentence from Romans ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt was vanished away. This is just one of many examples that illustrates the power and influence of Romans. Martin Luther called it the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. John Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, then we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. More recently, John Stott said, it is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the, profo the profoundest book in existence. If you want to learn 
how to play quarterback. You look to Tom Brady, not, sorry, not quite Aaron Rodgers. You look to Tom Brady. If you want to learn how to compose a symphony, you might look to Mozart or Beethoven. If you want to learn how to write poetry, you're probably going to study Shakespeare and Dickinson and all the rest. But if you want to learn about the wonder of the gospel, you look to Romans. Like I said, I've preached through enough books of the Bible that you know the drill by now that before we preach, we've got to put on our teaching, our, our student caps, and I'll put on my teaching hat, and we're going to spend a little bit of time introducing the book of Romans. We're going to do that this week and, and next week. So to that end, we begin this morning with an introduction to this wonderful book. We start with the issue of author. We know from verse 1 that Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. But it's significant how Paul identifies himself in this opening verse. He uses three key descriptions. He identifies himself first as a slave of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting because, you know, he could have identified himself in, a, in a, any number of ways. He could have identified himself with his long list of accomplishments to kind of, you know, set himself up and say, hey, this is why you ought to listen to what I'm saying in this letter because look at all that I've accomplished in my life. He could have pointed out his impressive ancestry. Saul of Tarsus from a wealthy family with an elite education. He could have pointed out his extensive training. His special training under the well-respected Gamaliel. His successful church planting history. Look at all, by, by the time he wrote this letter, look at all the churches that I've planted. Look how so many of them are thriving. Look how the gospel is spreading. You could have pointed out his impressive number of converts or his mastery of the Old Testament scriptures. He could have pointed to any number of his long list of amazing experiences. But instead, he identifies himself as a slave of Christ. The phrase slave of Christ indicates really two things. Number one, humility. And number two, total devotion to Christ as his master. As James Boyce says, Paul overlooks all of his achievements because what he is most concerned about simply overshadows them. Above all else, Paul knew the surpassing greatness of Christ and saw himself as nothing more than his servant. He loved Jesus, and that love and devotion to his Savior permeates the whole letter. And so throughout our study of this great book, we will keep coming back to that question and applying it and asking of ourselves as well, do you love Jesus as Paul did? Do you know him as the greatest treasure of the universe? Are you wholly devoted to him as your master? We will get into some of the deep doctrines and theology that come through so clearly in this letter, but may we never forget that, the, that those doctrines and theology are grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. May we love him and strive with Paul to be known as his servants. The second description that Paul uses to identify himself in verse 1 is that he is one called to be an apostle. And the word apostle has its uh, origins, has its roots in a Greek verb that means to send or to send out. 
an apostle is one then who is appointed and commissioned by Christ himself and sent out to be his messenger. So, so it has the, the weight of direct revelation, of direct uh, correspondence bet- with, uh, between the person and Christ. So an apostle is more than a disciple. An apostle is one who speaks the very words of God as one chosen and sent by him. And this is why Paul was able to say in Galatians 1 verse 1, where, how he opened that letter, he, called, he says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he goes on to say uh, in verse 11 of Galatians 1, The gospel he preaches carries the very weight and authority of Jesus himself. He says, The gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You remember the... The, the recording of the event, uh, the, the blinding of, of, of Saul at the time on the Damascus Road as he was traveling to persecute Christians and how uh, he was blinded, knocked off his, his horse, and there he was. And Jesus himself spoke to him from heaven and, uh, and commissioned him and sent him out to be his ambassador for the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that, was the, that, was what get, makes, that event is what makes him an apostle. And so when Paul writes Romans as an apostle, he is saying he has direct authority from Christ himself to teach. The message he proclaims is the very word of God, and that is exactly how we are to receive it as a message from God to our hearts and minds. And finally, in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as, so he's a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle, and then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. So he was called to be an apostle for a purpose. And that purpose was specifically to proclaim and spread the gospel. In fact, Paul's whole life and and work revolves around the gospel. And we'll say more in a minute, a little uh, little bit later on, uh, about what the gospel is. But for now, we see in these opening verses that this gospel concerns the person of Jesus. For Paul says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God the gospel, he says, regarding his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Tim Keller has said, the gospel centers on Jesus. It is about a person, not a concept. It is about him, not us. And again, through our study of Romans, we will wade into the deep pools of theology and doctrine. But above all, it is my hope and prayer that we will be drawn into a deeper faith and a more intimate knowledge of this person of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. So Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and that brings us to the issue of the date of his writing. Uh, the evidence uh, points uh, pretty clearly to a date of 57 AD when Paul was on his third missionary journey. And so as you can see on this map, uh, Paul's third missionary journey started in Antioch, which is uh, the uh, way on the east side by the red star that I've just put there magically. And uh, his travel on the th- in his third missionary journey took him all the way as far west as Corinth, uh, the purple star. And though he wanted to go directly back to Jerusalem, he was prevented from doing so, so he had to travel back through, uh, back through Macedonia. And, uh, and it uh, took him then through Macedonia back to Jerusalem, which is the black star down on the lower right-hand side. 
You can also see Rome in the very upper, uh, very upper left corner, the northwest there, uh, the green star. And let me just say by, by way of, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, uh, we'll talk about this a little more next week, but notice the locations here. So the purple star is Corinth, where most likely where Paul wrote uh, this letter from. Uh, so was, during his three-month stay in Corinth is, is probably when he wrote the letter to the Romans. And uh, at the time of his writing, he had his mission really, well, he had f- unfinished business to, to finish in Jerusalem. So he had to go uh, down to the east to the Black Star. And uh, that, the unfinished mission was he had been collect, taking a collection from the Gentile churches for the poverty-stricken Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So he had this collection. He had to bring that to them in Jerusalem. But his heart was in Spain. Now, Spain is not on this map, but Spain is farther west yet, so it's a you know a left of that green star. And he wanted to go to Spain because his passion at this point was to preach the gospel to those who had never heard. And so this, these were unreached people, uh, unreached uh, people, people had never heard the gospel in Spain. So uh, Rome was really a. a, a Nicely located right in between uh, Corinth, where Paul was writing his letter from, and Spain, where he wants to go to. And so Rome, he wanted to be sort of his base of operations uh, for his ministry to Spain. We'll talk about that more next week, um, but that's a significant part of the letter of Romans. Rome, by the way, uh, the church in Rome was not planted by Paul. He had never been there at this point. We'll say more about that later as well. So uh, Luke gives us the historical background for when uh, Paul wrote uh, this letter in Acts 20, verses 2 and 3. He says this, When the uproar, so this is again on Paul's third missionary journey. He's traveling all throughout the region. When the uproar in Ephesus had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. And finally, he arrived in Greece where he stayed for three months, and that was in Corinth. So it was most likely during those three months in Corinth in the year 57 AD that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And that brings us then to the issue of audience. As for the uh, audience, uh, Paul addresses the letter to the Gentile Christians in Rome. He says in verse 6, And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then again in chapter 11, verse 13, he says directly, I am talking to you Gentiles. But at the same time, there are clearly points throughout the letter where Paul addresses the Jewish Christians in Rome. So, for example, he says in chapter 2, Now if you, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And again in chapter 3, Paul addresses the Jews again, this time including himself. And he says, Do we, that is the Jews, have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And so we see that some parts of the letter are addressed specifically to Gentiles, and some parts are addressed specifically to Jews. And the most natural, reasonable conclusion is that the audience was made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, but but probably with a very significant majority of them being Gentiles. And as we'll see, this community of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles was a fractured and a conflicted community. Uh, And one of the reasons Paul wrote the letter was to cultivate unity in Christ between Jewish and Gentile believers, to kind of mend the, to build bridges between them and mend the the fractures and the the conflicts that had had, uh, so deeply set in. 
Now, one other sort of historical note, the conflict between Jews and Gentiles was probably intensified by a historical event, and that is that in the year 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all the, Ro- all the Jews from Rome. Now, as Probably the case, not every single one of them left, but, but a good number of them did. Uh, and the reason Claudius expelled them was because of disturbances that, was, that, was, that were related to the, the rise of Christianity. As, as Christianity gains in influence, there were some uh, disputes and disagreements and, and things between Jews and Gentiles. And, and it was a, uh, Claudius saw it as a, as a threat to his reign as the emperor. And he just said, well, I'll be, just be done with them. And he sent all the Jews, uh, expelled them all from Rome. Now, they were uh, returned to Rome in significant numbers five years later in the year 54 AD. But if you think about that, so you got this group of this community of believers, Jews and Gentiles. Now, all the Jews are gone for five years. The, Gen- the Gentiles remain. What's going to happen when, those Jewish, when the Jews come back? Well, uh, a significant amount of time had, had passed. And so the social distance between Jews and Gentiles had increased. And the Gentiles were much less inclined by this point to observe aspects of the Mosaic law that the Jews still practiced. And the Gentiles then looked down on the Jews for still clinging to the law. And, and the Jews looked down on the Gentiles for abandoning the law. And so there, you have all this, this tension and conflict as they try to come back together as a community again. The Jews were proud of their favored status as God's covenant people. The Gentiles were proud of their freedom. And so you have all these, these tensions and all these conflicts. And one of Paul's aims was to humble them both and to heal the brokenness between them. That brings us then to the matter of the overarching theme. As we study the book of Romans, it will be helpful to keep in mind it's what is sort of the one thing that, that, that ties the whole book together? Is there a dominant, prevailing, overarching theme? Well, there are many themes woven throughout the letter, and not everyone agrees on, on a single dominant theme as the main one. But some have said that the, the main theme of the book is justification by faith. Others have said the main theme is it's all about righteousness. Uh, some have said that, it's, uh, that it lays out God's redemptive plan for Jews and Gentiles, and that's the, the main thrust of the book. But I, as I mentioned earlier, I think all of these are, these are all clearly uh, important themes in the letter, but they are all, I think, subsumed under what I believe is the one main dominant overarching theme of the book, and that is the gospel. But it raises the question then, well, what is the gospel, which is a question, by the way, that every one of us ought to have a ready and, easy and, and, and simple, clearly articulated answer in our own minds. Do you know what the gospel is? Well, what is the gospel? The word gospel means literally good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. Uh, in the first century, if an emperor won a great victory on the battlefield, he would send out messengers to announce his victory and the good news of peace that came through it. And so the gospel then is an announcement. It's a declaration. It is good news of something. Good news about what has been done. And as Paul will make clear in his letter, what has been done is that God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take upon himself the penalty of human sin so that whoever repents of their sin and receives him in true faith is no longer condemned to hell, but is given the gift of everlasting life. That's the gospel. 
If you want a very basic, a very, very simple definition, I will give it to you. It is this. This is one of many, but this is what I think is a simple and basic, helpful definition. The gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the sacrificial death and perfect righteousness of Christ. And through our study of Romans, we will, send, we will kind of revolve around that theme uh, in, in lots of different ways. It'll have lots of different manifestations and expressions and, and things that kind of are offshoots from it. But that is really the hub of it all. At the center of it all is this gospel message, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And through our study of this great book, it is my chief hope and prayer that we will encounter the transforming power of the gospel. In January of 1990, the guards at Columbia's Bella Vista prison uh, walked off the job. Things had just gotten so rough and so bad and, and the conditions were so deplorable that they couldn't take it anymore and they just, they, 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 they left. And their absence threw the inmates into just this, this free-for-all riot and it was deadly and it was vicious. It got so bad that the local leaders called on the Colombian army to intervene, but the army was slow to respond. And so a single man named Oscar Osorio took action. He was a prison chaplain, and he gathered a handful of Christian volunteers, and together they marched through the prison gates at the risk of their own lives, singing hymns and carrying white flags. And Osorio found his way to the prison's public address system and he started just proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus and salvation through repentance of sins, through faith in Christ. And he called the inmates to repentance. And within minutes, the most amazing thing happened. The inmates laid down their weapons and the riot was over. But even more than that, the gospel swept through Bella Vista prison like a holy fire. And waves, wave after wave after wave of inmates came to Christ. And the violence stopped and lives were transformed. And what had been a place of uncontrollable brutality became a place of mutual forgiveness and reconciliation. This is just one small glimpse of the transforming power of the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed, and this is the gospel that lies at the heart of the book of Romans. And with that overarching theme in mind, I want to, the last introductory matter I want to discuss this, this morning with you is to formulate an overview of the book of Romans. So what is the, what is the flow? What is the outline? What is the argumentation? What, you know, what are the major movements of the book? And, and so I've uh, thought a lot about that, and I've read a lot of ideas about that, and this is kind of what I've come up with, that all of these uh, uh, sections, these main uh, parts of Romans, I think, are all tied to the gospel, the major theme of the gospel. So I see as I read Romans, I see eight major sections or movements to the book, all of which tie into that overarching theme. In the first section, uh, we see the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. 
This section includes what many consider, and I would agree, to be the theme statement of the whole book, and that is uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's the first section. The gospel is revelation of God's righteousness. The second section reveals the need for the gospel as it shows the universal reign of sin, starting with the Gentiles, then moving to the Jews. Uh, Paul shows how all of humanity is under the power of sin, for there is no one righteous, Paul says, not even one. The third section reveals the heart of the gospel as Paul so beautifully lays out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The righteousness that is required of us to stand before a holy God is not a righteousness, Paul says, that we can attain on our own through our own works or obedience to the law. Rather, he says, it is a righteousness given through faith in Christ to all who believe. And this gift of righteousness produces deep peace and hope in life. The fourth section flows out of the third and reveals then the hope of the gospel. Paul transitions here from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. Our justified status before God means that we can live in freedom from bondage to sin in the law. In the fifth section, Paul gives a defense of the gospel as he addresses the problem of Israel. And in these chapters, Paul articulates God's plan of salvation, his plan of redemption for Jews and Gentiles. In the sixth section, Paul talks about the transforming power of the gospel as he exhorts believers in the way of Christian conduct. And so these are sort of the, the paranesis sections, the, the, uh, the section of exhortations, of, you know, the, the working out of the, the gospel. He calls believers to humble service and self-giving love as manifestations of the transforming power of the gospel. The seventh section, uh, Paul gives parting words for the advancing of the gospel, and he concludes with a doxology celebrating the gospel. And so that, I think, is a sort of a roadmap for the book of Romans and, and a, an overview that will be helpful to keep in mind. Because as we go through, it's a, it's a dense book, and we're going to kind of, it'll be easy for us to get kind of lost in the woods and lost in the details. We need to keep coming back to this, this overview, this big picture view of the book of Romans and find ourselves in it and find ourselves in relation to the gospel that's laid out so beautifully throughout the whole letter. So I began this morning with the story of Augustine and how he was converted through the power of the gospel in Romans. And I want to conclude with a, another story of another man whose life was also radically changed by this letter. Martin Luther was a devout monk who had no peace of soul. He had tried. Uh, he wanted so desperately to please God and be accepted by him, and he tried and he tried and he tried. In fact, he, had, he said in his own writings, if ever there was a monk who was saved by his monkery, it was I. He tried and he tried to do all that, that, you know, to attain the righteousness that God required. But the harder he worked, the more elusive any assurance of salvation. And he was a miserable man who found himself hating God for requiring this standard of righteousness that was impossible to attain. And in desperation, Luther turned to a study of Romans. And by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he found the solution to his misery in the first chapter. 
Luther's life was radically changed when he read Romans 1, verse 17, which we've read before, but I'll read it again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. As Luther read those words, he realized that he had been reading them wrong every other time he had read them. And he realized for the first time that the righteousness he needed was not his own righteousness attained by his own doing, but rather was a righteousness from God, freely given to all who receive it by faith. And this changed everything for Luther. It completely changed the way he read all of Scripture. It was like a light flooding into his darkened soul. It was absolute freedom. And as with Augustine, the Holy Spirit brought about a dramatic conversion in that moment through these words of Paul in Romans. In fact, Luther himself described it in his own words, saying, I had no love for that holy and just God who punishes sinners. I hated him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood the words of Romans 1 verse 17... When I learned how the justification of the sinner proceeds from the free mercy of our Lord through faith, then I felt born again like a new man. And in very truth, he says, this language of St. Paul was to me the true gate of paradise. Through that one verse in Romans, Martin Luther was radically changed. And the Protestant Reformation was born. This is the power of of the gospel, a power to change hearts, a power to change lives, a power to alter the course of history, and a power to change the world. The biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce once said, there is no saying what may happen when, when people begin studying the letter to the Romans. My prayer is that what happens in us through our study is profound transformation for our good, and for God's glory. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we begin to lay a foundation for our understanding of and our encounter with this living letter, I pray that your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, would be at work even now in our hearts, Lord, that we too may experience and encounter the transforming power of the gospel. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in our hearts even now in this moment of silent prayer as we offer ourselves to you before your throne. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Oh, Lord, the, the beauty and the power of the gospel, as we will see all throughout the letter to the Romans, is that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
It's the hope of the gospel is that on Christ, the solid rock we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. Oh, Lord, may we find ourselves standing on the solid rock of Christ in the beauty and wonder of the gospel. And if we are not yet, and if we have not yet received in our hearts this transforming power of the gospel, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work by your spirit to draw us to it. And if we have, O oh Lord, then deepen our assurance of it and our commitment to it, that we may live as Paul did, as a slave to Christ, our master. In his name we pray, amen.